Guido has become a good friend. I actually met him through Earl. So I had commissioned Earl to write an unaccompanied violin piece for me. So as I mentioned earlier, I was going on all these rock radio stations and playing basically covers, a bit of Ozzy, a bit of ACDC. At a certain point, not completely rewarding, other than straight up classical stuff. There wasn't really anything more specifically metal inspired to play on my violin. The other way around, I was playing music on the violin that then inspired metal musicians, many of whom are very sophisticated in their tastes. Like I'll never forget Alice Cooper's guitarist going, do you ever play music by the pre-Paganini Italian virtuosi like Locatelli and Tartini or the lead guitarist of Megadeth talking about the Isai Sonatas? I've been a fan of Earl. Earl had for many years a really cool guitarless band that played really extreme music. And he, of course, played all the lead stuff on his violin. We were called Resolution 15. We had named ourselves after the North Vietnamese Resolution, stating that they would actively aid the Viet Cong insurgency in the South. Yeah, so that band was one of the few bands. In fact, there are only a handful of us that play heavy metal on electric violin in the U.S., me with my band, Earth and Grave, where I was playing a flying V six string, and then Earl, who's you know taking it much further with his six string. It's a seven string violin. Sorry, Rich. And it's there's so many strings, it's almost like who cares? But it's that added B flat. Oh, yours has seven. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I just need to go lower. It needs to go lower. Okay, here's a guy that literally plays real metal in a real metal band not some kind of crossover but like you know straight up metal and he's also classically conservatory trained violinist and he composes he was the main tune writer for his band as opposed to me who one of our guitarists was the main guy that came up with the riffs and then i added my part layers etc i didn't write the riffs so i thought well earl would be a perfect guy to write something for unaccompanied violin that i could then have a classical piece that felt metal but was a composed classical piece. So he wrote this piece and I performed it for a recital in New York. And Tito Munoz, who was an old friend of Earl's from conservatory, was in the audience to cheer him on and check it out. And he liked it so much that the next thing we knew, he was commissioning Earl to write for symphony. And I will let Earl tell you the rest of the story. Okay. So I actually went to school for violin, not for composition. For me to get the cold call from Rachel is amazing. But when Tito said, hey, why don't you write a symphonic piece for Phoenix? I actually couldn't because I didn't know how to. I tried and everything I did was not up to snuff, to my snuff. And I couldn't figure it out because I didn't study this stuff. I just went through the whole conservatory training as a violinist, not as a composition major. I went back to Tito. I said, this is beyond me, but I have an idea. If Rachel is down, I got to ask her. I don't know if she is, but if she's down, Maybe a violin concerto because the orchestra isn't at the time. I mean, if you look at the score, it's actually really involved. I had thought, well, the orchestra could just go, um -cha, um -cha, um -cha, um -cha, and I can give Rachel just all the problems and call in the orchestra part. So Tito was, yeah, that's okay. If I'm okay with changing the parameters of the commission. So then I went to Rachel and I said, Hey, are you okay with this? And she of course was thankfully so totally into the idea. That's how I ended up stumbling into my first symphonic work. This was an incredibly amazing experience for me with digging out my theory books from college, reading rules, <laughs> studying scores, pulling out scores from IMSLP or the library, going back to Manus, taking out scores of 
Ravel and Shostakovich and Debussy and just looking through things. So that's how that came about. And Earl, someday you're going to be in orchestration books where they discuss how you used traditional acoustic symphonic forces to achieve blast beats. And I know we're going to talk about that in a minute. But yeah, you've not only like done all the stuff you read about, but you've like innovated, which is really awesome. As long as we're on this thread. So the concerto was premiered to when exactly? April 2017. And did you do any revising after that? Oh, yeah. And I'm so grateful for the opportunity to make the revisions because this is my first outing. I'm not a composition major. I had not intended to be a composer per se. Well, you've written a million string quartets. You've written an awesome solo viola piece that Masumi Rastad recently recorded that people should definitely check out. But yeah, so you've done a lot of composing. This is just your first symphonic foray. That's true. And I think maybe that's not anyone's problem but mine, but psychologically, I can't wrap my head around it. Basically, when I heard the 2017 version, I was dissatisfied with the first movement. I felt it wasn't what I wanted to convey, that it was... Actually, Shostakovich talks about this. He argues against what I did. He goes, you know, when you write a piece and then you don't like it, you should just think about what you didn't like about it and then write another one and just try to learn from your mistakes. I'm like, hey, can you guys give me another shot at the first movement because I really don't like it. And they were charitable and very accommodating to me. So the first movement is a complete rewrite. I kept the theme, but that's about it. By the way, that was easy for Shostakovich to say because he was like Mozart. The music just came fully formed in his head and he just had to write it down. I think most composers aren't so lucky. <laughs> well, Earl is right. in good company with guys like Beethoven who had to revise and revise Absolutely. and revise. Well, let's set the scene here. So this album was recorded in Scotland's studio in Glasgow, which is the recording home of the Royal Scottish National Orchestra, which has a performing orchestra, plays in concert halls all over Scotland, but uh, this is its home. And I was very pleased to have Earl in the booth with me for his piece. What was uh, your experience of working with the engineers and of course, helping me produce the album? Oh, I was blown away. It was something I'll never forget. It was just this amazing experience with eyes wide open because I had never been in such a situation before. And I have had a lot of experience with recording, but not like this, not with a full symphonic layout, with watching where the mics were placed, watching you be amazingly exacting about the takes and watching you, Jim, with your legal pad, the pencil and the legal pad, and just being like, I'm not sure we got that one. And then you writing all of the exact specifications of how it's done. It was amazingly eye-opening for me as somebody who's used to more looking over the shoulder at wave files. Like when you record for rock or even commercial jingles, it's so different. You're not looking for the full take and with the eye of the long arc. I think that was my takeaway. Global perspective in terms of classical recording, and thank you for allowing me to see that. Oh, it was a real pleasure working with you. I always feel more comfortable when I have the composer right there to say, yeah, that's what I meant, or no, that's not what I meant. Rachel, how did these sessions compare to your other recent projects, including, I note, uh, we just released your Malik Jandali violin concerto that was recorded in, in Vienna. Yeah. In the case of Marin Alsop, she was discovering this music. I mean, obviously she had prepped, but she hadn't performed it. 
neither had I, <laughs> neither had anyone. And so a little bit of it was learning it on the fly with the composer's input as the session was rolling along, which is not uncommon for new music in the studio. We were very lucky in the case of the Menean Concerto that Tito and I had performed it for a subscription series in Phoenix. And by the way, I was really delighted that he didn't put it on some kind of new music evening or anything else. He put it on a straight up masterworks week. There are people of various ages in the audience, a good contingent of seniors, and everybody loved the piece. And of course, you know, very few of them, if any, would have been familiar with its extreme metal roots. They just brought their open ears as classical fans to the listening experience, and it totally worked, which I think is the mark of a good piece. Like you don't have to have ever heard actual Hungarian folk music to love listening to Bartok or actual Czech music to love hearing Dvorak, et cetera. And that was a real statement about the success of this piece. And then with Earl's changed first movement, I got to perform it not with Tito, but at least I got one under my belt with a local orchestra here in Chicago that was founded just a couple of years ago called the Cosmopolitan Orchestra which is a bunch of young people, particularly a number of Venezuelan immigrants who came here for college. And of course, there are only so many openings in your Elgin Symphony or your Chicago Philharmonic. And, and they wanted an, an orchestra outside of their college orchestra to be able to play and explore rep. And so they put it together and hired a conductor and and we got to figure it out ahead of the session. So that was really helpful. And so orchestras in the UK are brilliant. They are so well prepared, fully practiced and ready to go when they start the very first downbeat, but they hadn't ever encountered some of these things in their life because nothing like this had ever been written before. There's no way they could have. Tito was showing them how to make it work and it's a very fun process. Playing Earl's just crazy stuff for take after take after take. That was probably one of the hardest things I've ever done in terms of just getting through it and keeping the quality consistent and not keeling over. Mm. It was this love-hate thing for sure. What the heck did you just make me do, you jerk? <laughs> ah, I'm saying that without the profanity. As soon as the session was over and I ran from the booth to hug Rachel, she whispered over here, basically, you jerk. At the same time that I gave him a big hug. Big hug, big, big hug. It was all love. I don't think I could have gotten a more moving compliment, if that makes any sense, that it really... Now, I wonder, you know, Tchaikovsky Concerto was considered almost unplayable in its day, and now prodigies in the single digits can whip it off. <laughs> Not a ton of them, but everybody does the Tchaikovsky. So I wonder if in 100 years, the Menean will be like, no big deal. I'm flattered by the idea that it could last beyond me, because even to think about that stuff but like not, not well literally you know, not you'll dead. never find out because you'll be dead i'll be dead i'll never find <laughs> out so with my quartet with seven sons you know a lot of the stuff is written by me and i'm so happy that i have a team of game players maybe because one of them is my wife who are game to like really put themselves out every show we have we're all sweating and out of breath we all think oh my god can we make it to the end yeah, there are lots of styles of so-called rock music that can be apathetic or laid back or a little bit removed, but... Or heavy inspired music is that you have to give all of yourself. The thing that I wanted to say is that when Seven Sons was tracking our parts, we had collaborated with, you had mentioned earlier, with the Dillinger Escape Plan, which is a in that niche 
a legendary hardcore band because their shows, if you, anybody go on YouTube and Google Dillinger Escape Plan crazy moments, you'll just see for yourselves. So we were tracking with them and the lead guy, Ben Weinman, gets on after we had finished a take. All the bow hairs were on the ground and we were panting. And he gets on the talk back and he goes, that take was cute. You know, you want to play with the big cats, right? You got to do it again. No, the point is 100% is not enough. Right, you want to play with this band. You're here with us now. So let's do it again. So this is where the adrenaline Rachel talked about kicks in, right? Yeah, exactly. It's like the lyrics of Metallica's Whiplash. Just read those lyrics and you get the point. Okay, well, to further set this up, this was recorded at the beginning of January 2022, which is still very much height of the global pandemic. I remember having six COVID tests that week in order to be able to record this in Scotland, but we managed. And I should mention the session engineer for this was Head Morfitt Jones, the regular engineer for the RNSO, who then sent the takes back to uh, say the engineer Bill Malone in literally dozens of tracks for him to mix together. And uh, what you're hearing on the album is a mix down of those tracks as edited by me with lots of commentary from Rachel and from Earl on those edits to get to the version we considered ideal. So I'd love, uh, Rachel, you and Earl, to talk about uh, what you think of the engineering on the recording, and especially in your case, Earl, uh, the challenges of balancing the soloist in orchestra the way you've written the piece. Yeah, well, usually um, with every single concerto record that I've made, it's always a question of making sure that the soloist is poking through the texture enough that you can distinguish their line at all times but not sounding like the orchestra is in a different room like you get on some old lps where it's like soloist with a background of orchestra being realistic but also not necessarily exactly what was in the room and and finding that sweet spot earl's concerto was just conceived totally differently and that actually impacted the balance in a surprising way i'll let earl talk about that in a lot of metal music and a lot of extreme music, the vocalists, they are a part of the band. They are not necessarily like Mariah Carey. It's not meant to be the spotlight at all times and is one of a texture. So typically with a lot of this music, the vocalist is mixed low. It's actually usually the drums. If you take any metal song and you turn it all the way down, the first thing that you hear is drums. It's always drums. Yes, Slayer would sound stupid if vocals was in the forefront. Right. I definitely did write it with Rachel as texture at times. That was certainly the intent. And I think ultimately because of Bill in Scotland, it was successful. I'm so excited for this recording because I believe they got the balances right. And Rachel, what are your impressions of the final product? Yeah, well, there's actually... Something satisfying about having the orchestra just blast you out. And maybe that's me as a fan of loud music. It's probably going to be like Sarasati and all those guys are, I don't get the Beethoven concerto or the Brahms concerto. Like I'm standing here and the oboe has the only good melody. And the composer dared to have the soloist play descant instead of melody all the time. And that was radical. But yet the violinist was still always at the forefront of the texture. Now Earl's taken it a step further. Discant melody, forget it. We're just going to cover up the soloist. But always when it happens, it's so satisfying because the orchestra is almost being violent towards you in a really good way. 
Well, we talked earlier about how you discovered metal uh, first as a listener, uh, Rachel, but there's actually been a heavy metal side to your performing career. Can you just talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so I've never considered myself to be a crossover artist and not no disrespect to those who are, but that's just not where my passion lies as an artist. Like I said, I went on these rock radio stations that eventually evolved into taking the principles of whatever orchestra I was soloing with and going to listening room, pub type places a couple of nights before the big show, you know, and we would play almost like a bait and switch approach. Like, hey, come hear this string quartet play covers of Black Sabbath and Van Halen and then we would slip in some Shostakovich 8 and some Vivaldi and so whatever. And then people would be like, whoa, that classical stuff was really awesome. And then I'd be like, yeah, come hear the Vidyoski Concerto this weekend. And we'd give out discounts and all that kind of thing. So I've been doing that for, for quite a number of years. And that eventually expanded into a symphony program. I noticed that when orchestras have rock nights, they either do a cover band, a tribute band, and then the orchestra is backing it up. Or maybe the orchestra is playing by themselves, but like everything is amplified. You maybe add rock drums. And so you might get new listeners and stuff. And, you know, hopefully it's a revenue producer, which is also a very important thing for orchestras, but you don't necessarily get a new listener coming into that show who's then going to come back next week for the straight up Masterworks concert. So I thought, well, why not show the orchestra to these new listeners doing what it actually does? So my concept was to expand upon the string quartet set list and do the same thing with orchestra, have the normal symphonic forces completely unamplified. Because as soon as you add rock drums, then it's like a domino effect. The drums are literally too loud. So then you've got to amplify some of the other sections and you've got to wall off the drums and you've got to add monitors and it just becomes a nightmare. I thought no tech, no nothing, just the normal orchestra on stage and let's do this. And so slipping in classical pieces like last movement of Sibelius concerto, second movement of Brooke concerto, stuff that felt really hard rocking or epic that would really fit in between the rock things. So I've been doing that for a while. I never thought I would ever play electric violin or real rock music because I thought, well, I don't want to try to get together and form a band. I don't want to add myself onto an existing band. Like I'm pretty busy already as it is with regular violin and Baroque violin. My plate is full, but then won't tell the whole complicated story. But anyway, a couple of friends of mine in Chicago's metal scene decided to start a band together. And I was the one who had introduced them. And, and I felt like if I was ever going to be in any group, this would be the one to be in. And I was with Earthen Grave from 2009 to 2014. It was an amazing run. We have a full-length album that I'm really, really proud of. Unfortunately, we don't have any of our best concerts up on YouTube. We have very early rough concerts. Don't watch them. But the album is <laughs> where to check us out. But that was an amazing experience also as something of a bit of a classical composer myself to be part of a songwriting collective that it's not one person writing all the parts and handing them out like a chamber group that different people would write different riffs and then rearrange the order and layer on parts and just being part of that process was fantastic. And I also felt like I improved as a communicator on stage through my experience performing in rock venues because 
there's real-time feedback that you would never be able to have in classical because it's a different art form. It's a different kind of acoustics. But in metal, if the audience is into what you're doing, they're going to shove closer to the stage. They're going to throw the horns. They're going to headbang more vigorously. Or conversely, maybe they don't. So you know immediately in that moment as it's happening exactly how much you're reaching them. Of course, busking, for example, is another way you can get real-time feedback. I was always able to analyze as I was on stage, okay, what am I doing that isn't working? What do I need to change? Or what am I doing that is working? Of course, classical is a different art form, different range of emotions, different acoustic qualities, but yet that emotional element of just, am I reaching my audience? I feel like I became a better communicator with any music that I play because of those experiences getting up in front of rock audiences. And I should note that you've actually dedicated this album to uh, Earth and Grave. Yes, and our loyal fans. It's so cool to have that, those fans that feel ownership. And there's so many things that classical could draw from. Classical, you know, really should have t-shirts. Classical really should somehow allow people to post pictures that they themselves took of the show without disrupting others so that they can feel they have that tangible souvenir that they were there, that it was an event. There are some things that I miss from that world that I wish my other world had. But one of my most special experiences was the 2010 Great Performer of Illinois. I was honored to receive that. Um, They only give it out every once in a blue moon. And I randomly got it that year and performed this crazy concert at Millennium Park where it was like three concerts, except I had to play all of them. So an hour show with my Baroque trio in one gown. Then I did Tchaikovsky Concerto with the Illinois Symphony in another gown and then I changed to my leather and all of that for my metal band at the end and it was a wonderful opportunity for whatever you want to call it outreach or something because classical fans who would have been like I said too scared to venture into a rock venue mm-hmm. stayed out of curiosity there at Millennium Park and got to enjoy my band and and did enjoy it because it's good music and then um, meanwhile Earth and Grave fans who were too intimidated to ever show up at my normal concerto performances arrived early so they could get a good seat and accidentally mm-hmm. heard the Tchaikovsky concerto and were totally into it and I especially loved that they all started cheering at the end of the cadenza like you would at the end of a guitar solo which is you know not our it's weird they'll do that in jazz they'll do that in opera arias while the orchestra is playing the aria out but somehow it's frowned upon in violin concertos but it actually felt so right there in the outdoor venue with the big audience and like everybody started cheering at the end of the Tchaikovsky cadenza and that was wow that was so awesome (laughs) these people that don't normally hear classical loved it just what I I always hope to achieve. You had mentioned earlier how you discovered similarities between classical and heavy metal. Uh, were you surprised to learn that other metal musicians also had this discovery? Well, maybe at first, but getting to know the music with my thinking brain, which I literally hadn't done with all those years as a listener initially, <laughs> I would turn off my thinking brain and relax to anthrax or whatever, but that is totally of a Volby riff right there. Or, you know, like, oh, there's the Kreutzer etude or whatever it was in these different pieces. And and then it was inevitable that I started hearing, oh yeah, I was inspired by this part of the Brahms violin concerto or this or that. And, and especially great to just have that as fodder to be able to encourage people to give classical a try to say, hey, if you like this band, why not check out this classical that the band you like likes and stuff like that. And just spread that word that you don't have to choose between one thing or another and that this is really great stuff and there's something here for everyone. Earl, you grew up like Rachel with both genres in mind uh, with classical music and extreme music. So why did the 
extreme genres speak to you so powerfully as a youngster? Well, my first show that I went to was an underground all ages show when I was 13. And the band started and I was literally punched and I went flying. What Rachel was saying about being in a, like an adrenaline junkie, it didn't affect me negatively. I loved it. Maybe also because the dude that punched me ran up to me immediately after. He's like, oh, sorry. You okay? <laughs> you know, I'm fine. We're like going on and organized chaos. It's because I discovered it at, at that moment of an almost adolescent or adolescent boy. I think I discovered extreme music at that perfect time that it spoke to me. Like the way you were saying, Jim, how Shostakovich speaks to you. I think that sudden explosion of drums and guitar and, and screaming and then literally getting hit also was what did it for me. So going back to what I was saying about Shostakovich, at a little later, like 15, that feeling of classical music also having the same kind of power. I also want to digress slightly where to tell a story about when I first started dating my now wife and she's not a metalhead at all. She asked, I don't understand why you like this music so much. It's like they're screaming at me. And I said to her that if that's the way you take it, then that's the way you take it. But for me, they're not screaming at me. They're screaming. They're screaming for me, you. With and for. Maybe you feel powerless for whatever reason. And then you're hearing this thing and it gives you power and you f know that others are like this too. Mm. Yeah. And actually your wife is a classical cellist. She's now in your metal string quartet. <laughs> corrupted but, her. <laughs> um, I know for me growing up wearing Megadeth t-shirts to my violin lessons and just being around the community school and, and then civic orchestra and my international competitions. Like I never met anybody else who was listening to this music that I was listening to, but in my neighborhood, of course, you know, it was totally normal, but people from my neighborhood weren't generally doing classical. Was it sort of the same for you, Earl? exactly the same over simplistically you have a kind of class issue here i think with classical music unfortunately what happens is that a lot of it is coded to be aspirational who was mozart writing for who was haydn writing for who was more the brandenburg concertos dedicated to your shoulder to shoulder with the elite so it's seen as this called higher into the 20th century right into the 20th century until now, even, it's seen as this classier. If you're playing this music, you are elevating whatever the perception is. Whereas metal is an absolutely working class. People who started this music, like Black Sabbath, those guys were factory workers. I mentioned in my program notes, uh, Tony Iommi, the guitarist of Sabbath, part of how they developed that sound was he was working in a factory and the tips of his fingers got cut off. And so he was worried that he couldn't play guitar again, but then he was inspired after seeing Django Reinhardt, the gypsy jazz guitarist, play with his burned fingers. He was inspired that he could still play, so what he ended up doing was down-tuning his guitar and attaching leather thimbles to the tips of his fingers, which in a, a kismet, mm. nice convergence of events, that gave Sabbath that nasty, evil sound because the guitars are down-tuned, but it was also kind of down-tuned because Tony Iommi had to do that in order to facilitate playing with his damaged fingers. So <laughs> Rachel, you and I actually have a similar, none of my friends in the neighborhood knew anything of classical music. Yeah, nobody in my studio 
came from the city. It was every, all the kids were from suburbs. It was just, I was really the, the outlier. In your notes, you ask uh, this question rhetorically, how does a guy like me end up as a violinist writing a concerto? How would you answer that? Obviously, I rate myself, you know, not as skilled, but also skilled. I have facility on the instrument. So I, I went through the whole of Galamian slash delay training, and I love the violin. It didn't really occur to me to like quit, you know, so I, I stayed with it because I loved it so much. So I continued my education the whole way through. So I went to CUNY where I met Tito. I went to Queens College and I also went to Manus. So I went through the whole training and sticking it out because of my love for the violin, because I'm able to sort of exist in both worlds. I'm able to have opportunities. When you look at you and look at me, like I can pass. I've never, you know, never gone for the tattoos. I, I keep my hair long um, because I'm a metalhead. Like that's the only reason I keep my hair long, but people don't know that. They think my hair is long because I'm a girl, but you <sighs> you can't pass quite as easily. Actually, it's so funny when I walk into Luthier shops or like, and I used to be angry about it and I'm not angry about it anymore, but I definitely used to get judged. Like this guy can't play or this sort of talk down to, like as if I didn't know what I know, if that makes any sense. Mm -hmm. It's the old book by its cover, right? Right. Well, in your essay uh, later on, you ask two key questions. How do you express pain and violence musically, and how do you create catharsis for these negative states? I think we've already talked about this a bit in the context of the Shostakovich concerto. How would you answer those questions for yourself, and how you in your music express pain and violence and create catharsis? So I think I try to learn the lessons, copy, and then filter through me the lessons I learned at that first hardcore show I went to, listening to Shostakovich, loving Shostakovich, his music, their choices make me feel, how do I use those? What's my answer to those choices? When I hear a mosh section, like we were talking about, how does that make me feel? So if I want to express something, I'll use those tools. If I want a breakdown because I want the person to feel this way. I want the listener to experience this catharsis in this particular way. I'm going to use the lessons that I learned and filter it through myself. My concerto is definitely an attempt to express pain and violence musically and create catharsis. It's all so subjective, right? But I would definitely want the listener to feel some kind of catharsis through the music. So, Rachel, in your personal note, you wrote that the Shostakovich concerto, quote, was the only piece with which you would want to pair Earl's concerto on a recording. Having gone through the process now, would you say you feel that kinship Oh, uh, absolutely. Yeah, there's no doubt in my mind. Harkening back to the old LP days, you know, people will try to suss out which is the driving force behind an album and which is the B-side, like my Mendelssohn and Schumann mm -hmm. recording that I did with Sadie. People probably thought, oh, Rachel wanted to record the Mendelssohn and then added on the Schumann. And no, I really wanted to record the Schumann and thought, oh, what should I put with it? Oh, I might as well put the Mendelssohn. <laughs> and so in this case, I don't want to say Shostakovich is the B-side, but the Menean concerto was the initial driving factor, even though the Shostakovich, of course, was on my wish list of things I want to record in my lifetime. And then it was like, what am I going to put with it? There was not even one second of hesitation. It's the Shostakovich or nothing. Like that is the only one that could possibly be partnered with it. I'm just so excited for people to hear that pairing.
And you further write that Earl's Concerto, quote, elevates the rhythmic patterns and aggression of various heavy metal subgenres to an expanded realm of storytelling. Can you just say a little bit more about what you meant by that? Yeah, so not like the snobby, elevated class, whatever that Earl and I were talking about earlier, but really from an artistic perspective, like expanding upon might be another way to put it. Different composers that take more traditional music or folk music or popular music elements, whether you're talking about jazz or different traditional music of various countries, they take that music, which has... I'm not going to make judgments about what music is better or more important, of course, but, you know, that music has its parameters and what you can do in classical is deconstruct and reconstruct and just take things to places that they would never have gone within their initial genre. And so that's indeed what's happening here. You have stuff that's inspired by various kinds of metal and extreme music, but it's able to go beyond what those original genres can and do. So like uh, the William Grant still Afro-American symphony is often referred to as a, quote, elevation of the blues. Would you say that something similar is going on here? Absolutely. It's tricky to use that kind of language because then it almost sounds like you're improving upon. And that's not really the (laughs) point. You're taking things further just to do something else. That's really exciting as a fan of both metal and classical to see this. And it's actually really full circle because metal itself is inspired by classical in the first place. And then to see this piece, which is classical inspired by metal, that makes it particularly fun. Earl, how's it feel to you to have your piece described this way? I even mentioned it in my program notes. I will not dare to compare myself to the Shostakovich or his work. It's He's such a titan and a behemoth. When I read your email, Jim, and I was like reading through the podcast stuff, and I was thinking to myself, I'm like, how do I not just go, I just do things? <laughs> I am honored. I'm so, 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 so honored to even be in the room. Well, Earl, you mentioned three different sources of inspiration for the concerto, and one of them explains the title, Dependent Arising. Can you describe these and be sure to mention the meaning of that title? So, Dependent Arising is a Buddhist concept. It basically means everything depends on everything else. It's almost self-explanatory in hindsight. It's like a flower. What does a flower need? It needs sunlight. It needs soil. It needs water. It cannot exist independent of itself like jim how did you come to be okay your parents met okay but their parents had to meet there's all these external factors that jim ginsburg is manifesting himself you are not nor could you ever be an independent thing in and of itself so that's basically the concept of the term dependent arising and it's a buddhist term Buddhism for me is the philosophy I chose to follow that enables me to deal with pain and suffering. And the answers from a Buddhist perspective regarding pain and suffering is what makes the most sense to me individually. When I wrote this concerto, it was intended to be like this protagonist using the musical tools of of extreme music and classical music and my upbringing as a violinist through Western classical music, those three threads are what kind of infuses this piece because this is my attempt to answer for myself, how does one deal with pain and suffering? How do we deal with the fact that all humans must suffer, must die? What is a potential response to annihilation? So this concerto is one statement 
Well, in addition to your practice as a Buddhist, in the notes you mention that musically the concerto also draws obviously from the European classical music tradition, such as Shostakovich, and then from the world of extreme metal, and you mentioned the following subgenres, thrash, death, black metal, grindcore, mathcore, and hardcore punk. In fact, this might be a good time now to bring in the metal and extreme music terminology. Can you just name and describe the different metal and other techniques used in the piece? I'll do my best. There's so many. Well, give the most prominent ones anyway. The blast beat is something that is in metal. It's the kick drum, the snare, and a crash cymbal all playing unified depending on how you want to notate it, like either 16ths or 30 seconds. So it's this, it gives the listener the sense of just this overwhelming force. One feels overwhelmed because everything is just going. It's also meant to be played in a drum set, assuming a right-handed drummer. The left hand is on the snare, the right hand is on the crash. Everybody's playing unified and the drummer is playing unified 16ths, 200 BPM. There is a technique that had to be developed for a blast beat. And it's also not something that you can do off the cuff. I definitely got pushback from orchestral percussionists when I said, I want you to play this snare. I had marked it at 220 BPM and I want you to play the snare running 16th notes with one hand. And I definitely got pushback from percussionists. Part of it is the tension. Part of it is that you can barely play it. And that tension creeps in, into the execution of it and it's absolutely on purpose. So there's blast beat. There's also the mosh section is like we had mentioned earlier when you're at a certain tempo and then it's a sudden ramping up to not always, but approximately a third faster. That gives it a, a certain rush. And then conversely, you have something called a breakdown, which is where the piece is going at a certain BPM. Let's say it's going at 220 BPM. And then you have a sudden drop, maybe like 100, maybe 120, something like this. And it gives the listener again for the opposite reason catharsis the breakdown is the sudden slowdown it's an extreme sudden shift to a remarkably slower tempo it's the opposite of the mosh actually that's my favorite moment of the whole entire concerto you can't even hear me playing but it's like <laughs> da, 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 da. it's just oh my gosh it's <laughs> so amazing and Maybe that's because I'm also a fan of doom metal, which is one of the more slow and slower. like ponderous styles. It's it's much slower. But yes, we miss chugs. Chugs are repeated, low-range rhythmic riffs he played originally on a guitar. So it's when you think of metal, that's a chug. So in earlier forms of metal, the chugs were generally perfect fifths. So as the genre evolves, a lot of bands started incorporating dissonant chugs for greater tension. So you have chugs and you have breakdowns, you have blast beats, and you have mosh sections. Great. So Rachel, there are also many places in the score where you're instructed to play insert name of heavy metal guitarist to hear, for example. How do you translate those to your instrument and make them work in the context of the concerto? Some of it, I think, was just for fun in a way, like it didn't really change my interpretation, but sometimes those sorts of things are useful. Like if you say you're going to play something more like a Carrie King solo, then you know it's going to be a little more like smeary and screamy and less precise. 
So there are definitely reference points, easy to find those because all you have to do is just with the power of Google and streaming, you don't have to be previously familiar with this. If any other violinist takes this up, hopefully they'll get the point. No, it's really useful. And I wish 19th century concertos had such reference points. I've heard the Joachim Hungarian concerto that I recorded for you with the Brahms played in a very Roma kind of flashy way. And of course, Joachim was thinking of taking this, it was called gypsy music back then. And again, with the word elevating, really seriousing it up um, or down mm. or or something. Okay, those are the melodies, but we're going to play this very Germanically. And if you don't know that about him, then you think, oh, it's gypsy music. I'm going to play it like schmaltzy gypsy music. And then Joachim would have been turning over in his grave. And so knowing what the intentions are and, you know, in these days, what do you have we have this podcast now which is brilliant but you don't have the old resources somebody writing a dissertation a hundred years from now they aren't going to have the physical written correspondence of earl and me conversing back and forth over snail mail mm. which they aren't even going to necessarily have saved emails or original sketches on manuscript paper you change something in finale and you push save as new so you don't see the process in the way that you used to so always urging composers to write forwards and to write asterisks and to do just whatever they can so that it, yeah if i work with the composer hopefully i'll teach people who teach people who pass things on like my professor and Germany who said, my teacher said that Joachim said that Brahms said to play it like this. The more you can put on the page, the better. So it's absolutely great that Earl put that stuff down. And I think that was as much for posterity as it was for me and Tito and everybody else, of course. I definitely did that on purpose for people to understand whoever chooses to play it. It's here. Do It's all music, but this is coming from this. And if you want to do it the way it's intended, please do the homework check out these players and see where it's derived from. And then you can make your own choices for sure. Especially because it's not a touchstone that people would have familiarity with, right? These days, if you're playing a blues or jazz inspired piece, for example, people kind of have a sense of that in their ear to some degree. This thing you put in front of an orchestra, there might be not one single player in that entire orchestra who's ever heard anything remotely like this stuff. It's not on the radio. It's it's kind of necessary. So Earl, have you thought about helping potential future soloists by accompanying uh, the score with YouTube links or something to some of these examples? I'm going to reveal myself as a potentially somewhat spiteful person <laughs> and say no because okay. you should do your homework. Somewhat of an undercurrent amongst some classical musicians who would just play it as if it were Brahms. And in that way, I would say, I already spelled it out for you. Mm. Go listen to the Dillinger Escape Plan. Go listen to Kenderia. Go listen to Carbomb. Go listen to Meshuggah. We all have Google and we all have YouTube. So if the soloist can't Google something, then I don't want them playing this. Wow. Okay. It's literally a very easy Google. Like a playlist would be redundant. That's it. You don't even have to go to Spotify and like, you just Google Meshuggah and that's it. <laughs> that's it. That's it. Well, the first moment has a title, Grasping at the Self. What is the meaning of this title and how do you translate that to the music? So Grasping at the Self is, again, it's, it's filtered through a Buddhist worldview. It's that all of our suffering is because we are attaching ourselves to it, that it's this, I need, I want, I have to have, this person did this to me. I feel this, this is how, this is 
my I need this. I want this. So all of those things are, according to the Buddhist worldview, this is what causes you to suffer. It's because you grasp. We grasp. We want. I need. I want. So it's that craving that I'm trying to convey here. I must have this. Well, this is the longest moment of the concerto. In fact, it's almost as long as the other two combined. Uh, you write in the notes, the solo violin's entrance in the first movement is meant to express the universal fear of death. And you continue from there. So can you give a roadmap of the movement starting from there? When Rachel enters, that's the whole theme in a way. Like, ah, that's it. Where this podcast is done. We've I just said it all. That's the theme of the whole concerto. It reappears in various iterations throughout the entire thing. I really beat it to death. It's transfigured, it's changed, it's fragmented. It's I play with it in all sorts of ways to illustrate the point I'm trying to make at that certain point in the piece. But Rachel's first statement alone is the seed of the entire work. So you have that, her entrance, and then an orchestral answer, and then her saying the same thing, altered slightly, and then evolves through with various counter motives introduced later on, but are, there's still echoes, uh, at least intended to be, echoes or uh, partial statements of the original statement. And for you, Rachel, what's it like to play all this? Well, what I love is that Earl is a violinist. So even the most out there stuff that you're cursing him as you're having to practice it, it actually <sighs> does work. It lays correctly on the violin and it is ergonomic even if it's really really fast ergonomic <laughs> but yeah there's nothing that's against the violin like so many non-player composers where they where violin wasn't their main instrument and they write stuff that's hard because it's awkward well i always use the expression that this concerto goes to the edge of the possible like it's almost not playable for someone with my background or level of technique that's saying a lot. This is like about the limit of what I could actually be capable of. And he's gone all the way there. And it's, yeah, it's mm. the edge of the possible, but so satisfying when you, when you have practiced it enough and you're just letting it rip. Okay. Well, I thought we could hear about the last two and a half minutes of this moment. And this is where Rachel comes in with a minor second bass theme that grows in intensity, becomes more and more insistent and leads to that breakdown that you talked about earlier, Rachel, where the tempo slows. And it slows suddenly, and that's the whole point. It, it doesn't ease into it. It just slams the brakes. And really, the orchestra at that point is playing at maximum volume and ending on a very dissonant chord. And by the way, we have the longest break between movements I think I've ever put in a recording because you need <laughs> it after that chord. But right before this, and this is actually where we'll start the excerpt, the bassoon plays Shostakovich's DSCH musical signature. Uh, Earl, why did you decide to introduce the passage this way? And is there anything else you want to say about the end of the movement? Well, E-M-A-N doesn't make any notes, It doesn't right? make any notes. Although I will say, I'll confess that it was, I think it's not on purpose. I wasn't trying really? to- Really? Because it's, I mean, I checked. It's it's the, it's not even in a different key. It's the those notes. Right. Right. I think the main theme of the concerto is not DSCH, but the intervals are such where like, remember, Rachel, you were like, that sounds already creepy and spooky. Just D E flat, you know, da, ba, ba, da, right. Is already creepy. And my theme is already using some of the same intervals. There's like minor seconds and like whatever. So I think 
I wasn't trying to put that in there, but I do think that it's such a strong thing in my musical unconscious that it just came out. You live with music, it's in your head, and I accidentally stole it. It was not a conscious choice. It wasn't like, I'm going to honor Shostakovich right now by putting this right here. Well, it was also the, you know, because da, 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 there's a tritone in there. It's notes you occasionally just need to have if you're writing dark music. I have to wonder if having played the eighth quartet where that motive appears literally hundreds of times, I guess that may have just soaked itself into your consciousness a bit. I think so. I would, I would definitely agree with that, Jim. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, let's hear that then. So this is the last part of the first movement of Earl Manin's Violin Concerto. The concerto is titled Dependent Arising. The movement is titled Grasping at the Self. And it ends with that amazing breakdown section that we talked about. So here it is performed by, once again, Rachel Barden Pine Violin with the Royal Scottish National Orchestra conducted by Tito Munoz. You just heard the ending portion of the first movement of Earl Manian's Violin Concerto, titled Dependent Arising, written for Rachel Barden Pine and conductor Tito Munoz, and performed by them, in this case with the Royal Scottish National Orchestra, from a new recording on CD Records titled 
dependent arising after this concerto. Well, the second movement of this concerto has a very evocative title. The full title is, The Crows Already Knew of Your Grief, They Will Carry Him Home. In the notes, Earl, you explain your personal motivation for writing this movement, as well as the Buddhist practice to which it relates. Can you explain that? Sure. A good friend of mine had died around the time of the writing of the concerto. He died of kidney cancer that went undiagnosed for years, tragically. His name was David Gotai. He was the founder of the Sweet Plantain String Quartet. And I had known him because I was like their stunt violinist. When uh, their other violinist is also, Eddie Venegas is also the main violinist for Mark Anthony, the famous singer. And so when he would go on tour and Sweet Plantain would have a gig that was already booked, I would come in and sub. Dave became a very good friend of mine. And when he died, it sent pretty big shockwaves through the New York string player community. We all loved him. We all knew him. When I had come home from the funeral, the theme of the second movement was full on in the head. That sometimes happens. I wrote it down that night. That's the theme of the second movement. I don't think I was trying to write the violin concerto at the time, but I think I had the theme in my head. When I sat down to write the second movement, I went back into my Sibelius files and I pulled the theme. So that was that part. And the the Buddhist practice is to think about death. One of the things that Buddha says is to go to a graveyard or actually in early Buddhist practice, they would go to funeral pyre where they used to burn the bodies. You see that this is your future. Don't run from this. This is what this is. And you're supposed to do a meditative practice there and of course there's crows and and like the idea of the crow being a harbinger or also sometimes a messenger between the worlds so to speak is also an element there so that's how that title ended up being what it is well i was just going to say the theme is so achingly beautiful and mournful i'm going to ask where it came from and now rachel of course the movement has some thornier moments but in general it's really a meditation and quite a contrast to the outer movements Uh, do you approach it differently well, play it like violin music, lyrical and sad and this longing and everything. But, you know, slow and even soft doesn't mean it's not metal. And actually, I wrote this article one time for Decibel magazine, um, the five most metal pieces of classical music. And one of them was the slow movement of Beethoven's Seventh Symphony, which people who know this stuff will would absolutely agree is like super doomy. And so there's that same kind of aesthetic, but again, taken to a slightly more expansive place that exists in this movement, which really does fit. You know, you wouldn't want it just loud and fast, loud and fast, loud and fast for however long the concerto is, 25 minutes, 30 minutes. That would be too much. And even when I do covers of one of the more epic Metallica songs, like One or Master of Puppets, even like Fade to Black, I will literally make the softs softer or add softs in the slower, more lyrical parts. And then the classical kind of approach, it doesn't classicize it. It actually makes it more impactful. Yeah. So I think that that's what's going on here for sure. All right. Well, I picked an excerpt from the middle of the movement this time, and it begins with the soloist, your Second statement of the main theme, which comes in a higher register than the first time, and then before the mood darkens, including one of those screaming blast beat outbursts from the orchestra, 
after which you then play a more impassioned version of the theme in multiple stop chords. Uh, is there anything you want to say about what's going on there, Earl? No, it's nothing more than what the music already says. It's just an exploration of grief. And when Rachel's playing those with double stop, uh, triple, <laughs> quadruple stop chords, actually, sometimes, I'm trying to convey deeper grief. Okay, well, we'll talk about the cadenza, which, like Shostakovich, you end the movement with the cadenza, but we'll talk about that after we hear this excerpt. So here is that two and a half minutes about from the middle of this amazing uh, movement uh, from the Romanian violin concerto titled Dependent Arising. Once again, Rachel Barton Pine is on violin with the Royal Scottish National Orchestra conducted by Tito Munoz. You just heard a portion of the second movement of Ermanian's Dependent Rising Violin Concerto, performed by Rachel Barden Pine, with Tito Munoz conducting the Royal Scottish National Orchestra. And this might be a good time to remind people that this album will be fully available on August 11. That means on all the streaming sites from Spotify to Idagio and everything in between. And of course, pre-orders uh, will ship at that point. Uh, and you can order the album before or after that date 
on places like Amazon.com, Archive Music, and of course the Sadie Records website, C-E-D-I-L-L-E Records.org. Now, as I mentioned, the second movement ends uh, with an extended cadenza. And Rachel, how do the cadenzas of Earl's Concerto and the Shostakovich compare, and do you approach them any differently? Actually, that whole idea of the buildup, you know, especially the second cadenza, which starts da 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 slow, and then this accelerando. You don't get too many accelerandos in actual metal. It's like whatever the BPM is, it's steady, and then maybe it just subito changes. Uh, but accelerandos are so effective in classical, and combining that with metal riffs is something that you aren't going to get in metal that works so well. And that again, this idea of expanding the the possibilities, and so the fact that there's this accelerando, and it does get even more screaming for even longer than the Shostakovich concerto and then different than the Shostakovich. Once you reach that climax, you stay there and the movement begins where the cadenza took you and you continue doing that for like a while. And so it's just, yeah, it's incredible. In fact, when I perform the third movement as an isolated movement, which works really well in my metal meets classical symphony programs or even just other situations, I always start with the cadenza because that as a lead into the last movement is the last one would sound perfectly fine if you started right on it, but it's even more effective if you do that whole build up. Well, as you note, the third movement comes straight out of the cadenza and, and you continue playing straight through, unlike in the Shostakovich. The title of this movement comprises the text of the Buddhist Heart Sutra. Earl, could you first explain what a sutra is, then read the title both in the original and in the English translation and explain its meaning for you? A sutra is a canonical text in Buddhist literature. This is supposedly words that come from the Buddha himself. Even though uh, some of these sutras, especially in the Mahayana, uh, the Vajrayana, post-date Buddha's lifetime. I don't need to necessarily get into that full on. But the Heart Sutra goes like this. Gate, gate, para, gate, para, sam, gate, bodhisoha. That means gone, gone, gone beyond. Keep going until enlightenment, until we realize our actual selves, until we actually, like the idea again, through the, the Buddhist worldview is that we already are perfect beings under delusion. We are deluded into wanting, into craving, into seeing the world not as it truly is. So this Heart Sutra is, keep going, man. Just You're going to see that this is not the horror that you think it is, if you can just see yourself. And so, how do you express that in music? I'm taking the original theme that I had opened with in the first, and what I'm attempting to do is I'm attempting to transfigure it where it's not major, like in, in that way, like Shostakovich, I'm trying to be ambiguous because I'm not claiming to be an enlightened being myself, right? This is like a hypothesis, as, as you know, like a hope, as my teacher likes to say, very wonderful nun that I listen to a lot. She, she says, you're taking these concepts as a hypothesis and you're testing it out, right? So I am not enlightened, but it is what I imagine enlightenment to be not like a heaven like everything is suddenly awesome we i was saying earlier in the shostakovich like an a major yay a major yay i imagine it's not like that but it's nothing actually changed except your perception that's what changed i attempt to show that musically 
that it's still the same themes. Nothing really changed. I did change it. And I tried to almost show the listener the same theme from a different angle or a different viewpoint. Well, you open uh, the moment with quite the tempo marking. It says, embody the demon, embody the wrathful deities, spiral out, keep going. So I guess I'll ask Earl what you wanted to convey with this, and then Rachel, how you respond to that as a performer. Wrathful deities in Buddhism, they're not like Judeo-Christian demons. They are actually still appearing for our benefit, if that makes any sense. Or maybe it's actually closer to the Jewish idea of Satan, of the block. You know, I'm getting in your way because I want to show you something. It's not a... I'm here to punish you and you did something wrong and I'm going to make you suffer. This is more, the best analogy I've heard from a Buddhist perspective is the mother slapping the hand of a child who is about to touch a hot stove. Using wrath, not as a negative, but as a sort of transformational tool. It's very active in this wrathful way, but it's not meant as an aggression to the self. It's more of a wake up idea. And Rachel, for you as a performer, when you read that marking, what what do you do with it? Yeah, this idea of embracing the aggression for what it's teaching you and leaning into it and feeling that release, really. And Earl, a lot happens over this movement, which lasts only six minutes, and there are a lot of recurring motives. Do any of these have particular meaning or is there any other guidebook you can give us? Rachel's entrance in the first movement says everything already, but it's the same motives, but transformed. Like, am I looking at it through this angle? Am I looking at it through what's my perception of already existing phenomena? So it's using the same musical tools. I actually, in a certain way, <laughs> I haven't changed anything. <laughs> I see. Okay. Well, Rachel, there's certainly a lot of frenzied playing in this movement. Is there any trick to keeping up the energy? to make it all work together. Plenty of sleep, a healthy vegan diet. (laughs) (laughs) Just knowing that if I just push myself past the limit, I can collapse afterwards. That's the thing. I'm in Scotland. I always do this. I make these CDs. I'm exhausted. And then I'm like, I'm in Scotland. I'm going to get together with my fiddler friends and jam. And then I sound the worst I could possibly sound. Like I can't even remember the tunes. My fingers are flubby. Like... (laughs) Oh my God, you sounded awesome. What are you talking well, you haven't heard about? Sa- Please, Scottish fiddling when I'm really playing it. Like, that was horrible. So the, after the recording, we ended up in a hotel room with Tim McDonald and Rachel and Tito and me. And the two of them were playing this amazing Scottish fiddling. Uh, that actually scares me more because if that's you sounding like crap, <laughs> Rachel, I don't even want to know. I, I have, I just have no interest in knowing what you're at. You know, well, well, there is an album titled uh, Scottish Fantasies you might want to check out. <laughs> no, no, I don't want to hear it because she already sounded so awesome. I already, I'm, I should just quit already. So, well, you know, know, I wanted to mention this as speaking of like ethnic styles, like you, as you mentioned, are like an Asian guy. And when you normally think of just name one, you know, like today's Asian composers, most of their music sounds somehow or another, at least a little bit Asian. And yours does like, you would not ever guess your ethnic background one way or another listening to any of your music. 
because obviously the metal influence or the, the extreme music influence is the prevalent building block along with just all of the history of classical music. I, I'm just curious about that because I think that's actually really different. Definitely, you're right. Basically, the short story is, is that I grew up in an Italian Irish neighborhood, super working class, and there were no Asian kids around me. So that's even a different discussion where I, not until adulthood did I actually understand or come to terms with my Asian background. My, you know, my cousin said to me, she's like, I feel really bad for you because it's like, you don't belong anywhere, which was like a little bit meaner than I think she meant. <laughs> like even my wife jokes, you know, I guess I secretly married an Italian guy. <laughs> From this moment, I've chosen an excerpt from early on, uh, and this includes a six-bar orchestral tutti passage marked demonically majestic. Uh, this seems to me a particularly metal moment. Is, is that true? Oh, 100%. That is yeah. absolutely. So that part, that's also a breakdown moment there, because if I remember correctly, I wrote it, right? But, uh, mm -hmm. if I, if no, I it is a break. The tempo does slow uh, Suddenly, immediately. Right? Yes. Yeah. Suddenly, immediately slow. That's so. This is a breakdown moment, and my original alliteration. I was like, "This sounds like Star Wars. This is not ah. cool. This is not cool." Like I wrote it, and I was like, "This is Darth Vader like showing up." It's kind of hitting almost the right thing, but it's really not. So, thought to myself, "How do I make this more demonic?" And I know Vader already symbolizes something demonic, but I wanted to remove the cheese. <laughs> so I figured out my way around it. Absolutely. 100% metal moment. This is a breakdown. This is meant for people to make the stank metal face in there. That's Got the it. feeling. Okay. Sure to listen for that then in this passage. This is another about two and a half minutes from the third movement, the final movement of the Dependent Arising Violin Concerto of Romanian, performed by Rachel Barton Pine with the Royal Scottish National Orchestra, conducted by Tito Munoz. Thank <laughs> you. 
You just heard a portion of the finale, the last movement, as it were, of Dependent Arising, a new violin concerto by Earl Minian, written for Rachel Barden Pine and performed by her with the Royal Scottish National Orchestra, conducted by Tito Munoz on the new recording on Sadie Records titled Dependent Arising. And now that we've heard excerpts covering all three movements, including some very vigorous playing from the orchestra, Rachel, how did you feel the orchestra responded to the piece. I should note that the Shostakovich is in their regular repertory. I mean, they probably play that concerto at least every other season. Earl's piece obviously was completely new to them. And for me, it was fascinating as a producer to watch uh, Tito teach it to them. Uh, what was uh, that process like uh, from your perspectives and how do you feel the orchestra responded? Yeah, I mean, who knows? Maybe a generation ago, they would have all been going ick or something. But, you know, I think also having, you know, someone of Tito's stature and me who they've worked with before, taking this music very, very seriously and Tito being so knowledgeable about what he was going for. Cool stuff. Like I said, the Phoenix audience who didn't know heavy metal from anything, people of all ages, classical fans, they loved the music. It is very effective as contemporary classical music. And I think the musicians were having fun. And I think some of them, especially the percussion and timpani section, were enjoying hitting things hard and <laughs> being loud because being loud is kind of fun sometimes. And yeah, so there were lots of smiles going around and it was a really good time. So what kind of vibe did you get from the orchestra as they were recording the piece? I was still just in the moment of like, I can't believe this is happening. But it was such a pleasure to really hear an amazing orchestra like the Royal Scottish National Orchestra play this music and hear like the music that I grew up listening to and the music that's affected me so much in my life almost like reflected back at me. It was, it was <laughs> I don't think I'll ever get over it. Well, now that we've heard examples covering the whole program, what would you like people to take away from hearing each concerto in its entirety and the whole program as a whole? I think there was definitely a lot of respect. Like people could tell that what Earl did was really sophisticated and really special. It's like, yeah, good for you, man. By any chance, people aren't yet fans of Shostakovich. You know, hopefully they will go and listen to various symphonies, various chamber music, like CD's wonderful box set of the Pacifica doing the quartets, you know, the cello repertoire, all that good stuff. People probably haven't encountered Earl before, and except for the actual, you know, Earl fans who are coming to this project. So definitely check out more of Earl's stuff, particularly his Seven Sons string quartet, mm. um, for which he writes all their original stuff. And who knows, maybe there will even be a listener or two who will be curious to check out real heavy metal after hearing this stuff inspired by it. And Earl, any final thoughts from you? Slight digression, but I'm going to come back to it. So Seven Sons, we just came back from doing a chamber music festival in Walla Walla. And after one of the concerts, an elderly woman came up and talked to my wife and said to Jenny that she wanted to thank her because she has a husband that is in hospice right now. And she feels the pressure when everybody says to her, how are you doing? She feels this pressure to say she's okay. And secretly she's not okay, as we all can imagine. And she thanked Jenny because she said, thank you for giving a voice to the rage that I feel inside of me. And thank you for helping me to bring that out. Of course, music is so subjective and nobody gets the same thing out of whatever, but that's my hope for this music. And I think that Shostakovich and, and my piece do share that thread 
there. I hope that the listener gets whatever feelings they have that are like negative emotional states that they're able to grasp onto this music as a conduit and be able to release some of those things in that way. Yeah, actually, thinking about what's been said here, I think these two themes of rage and catharsis that run throughout both, but one difference, I think, is Shostakovich, that rage has to be so often muted or self-censored, as you hear, in the, especially in the first movement, whereas you can give full voice to that with your blast beats and everything. That's something Shostakovich would not be as comfortable doing, although he finds ways with sarcasm and irony to express similar feelings. This is where I always like to ask about what's coming up. So what's coming up for each of you in the 23-24 concert season? You know, I'm just really focusing on this summer right now because I've got my big Hollywood Bowl performance with Los Angeles Philharmonic coming up and some other concertos in South America and concerts for Santa Fe Chamber Music Festival's 50th anniversary season. So I can't quite remember what I've got going on this fall, or maybe my brain is just fried after our quite long conversation. <laughs> but yeah, doing the Florence Price some more places, including um, back in Scotland. And so actually, Florence Price was the first ever concerto that I performed by a woman composer. I played a couple of short pieces by a couple of Canadian composers um, with orchestra and with the Vancouver Symphony, but that's it. And so there's a Bulgarian composer that a conductor of an orchestra on the East Coast happens to be a fan of. And that will be literally my second ever concerto by a woman composer. And her name is almost the same as my daughter's. It's My daughter is Sylvia, and this composer is Sylvie. Of course, my daughter is an inspiring composer. So super looking forward to learning and performing that. And then just the usual rounds with the various orchestras and various obvious concertos with some other interesting things mixed in. I guess by the time this airs, everything will be up on my website and you can go look for yourself. But I also have different recording projects coming up as well. Lots of things in the pipeline with CD. We've actually put a plan together for, I think, the next 10 years and and plenty of other projects that didn't even make that cut. I will never be bored, that's for sure. Well, since you mentioned the Florence Price, I should note that these recording sessions in January of 2022 also, before we moved on to Shostakovich and Minian, included your recording the Florence Price Second Concerto. In that case, uh, Jonathan Hayward uh, was the conductor, and that made it on to your album that was released in the fall of last year, 2022. Yeah, so on top of the difficulty of all three of these pieces, trying to squish them into just two days worth of recording sessions was uh, yet another added level of challenge but it all worked it couldn't have gone better the stars were definitely aligned we had all these contingency plans for you know what if our entire bassoon section comes down with covid and we had second calls and third calls on speed dial and what if the engineer you know gets test positive like all these contingency plans and somehow miraculously it all worked so it was definitely meant to be so earl what's coming up for you so seven sons is dropping an album of an entire reimagining of the Dillinger Escape Plans album, uh, One of Us is the Killer, on September 29th, 2023. We definitely have some shows revolving around that. We're in the process of figuring out exactly how and when those are going to go. I have a tour with Vitamin String Quartet in December coming up. And then after that, Seven Sons is uh, unofficially, unofficially, roped Rachel into contributing a small part to this to guest on it along with other guests 
Billy Reimer of the Dillinger Escape Plan, Kenny Grahowski of uh, Imperial Triumphant and John Zorn into the next Seven Sons album slated to be released probably at the end of this year, depending on how the pre-production goes. Any other commissions in terms of composing? Nope, not yet. (laughs) You just did some cool ones. I did Masumi's thing. I did something for the Vermont Youth Orchestra. I just take what comes. I still don't psychologically think of myself as a composer, so I don't really put myself out there for that. I just do I just do violin work as it comes. Well, hopefully this recording will help change that. You know, people will hear it and you'll start getting more than you can handle. I would love that. That would be great. But yeah, so I'm still writing for Seven Sons and I'm writing this album. It's going to be our first album of all original work, I guess by me. So that's a fairly big thing happening too. So of course the requisite Jewish wedding work and uh, commercial recordings and all that good stuff too. So that's my next year. Great. So we always end these classical Chicago podcasts with a question. And this one, I think will be specifically for Rachel about what makes Chicago special as a musical city. So Rachel, can you talk about performing so many different genres here, classical, metal, folk, such as your Scottish fiddling, blues, etc., and how Chicago perhaps uniquely accommodates such musical curiosity? Yeah, I mean, I don't really know how we came to be this lucky, but you know, there's so much going on in Chicago. You think of Chicago music, of course, you think Chicago blues, which is a particular style of blues that arose right here. But then also, you know, we invented house music, we invented industrial music. There's so much good things that have arisen from here. And there's so many great scenes going on, but I want to bring this podcast particularly give a a shout out to the metal scene you know we have a very active and very dedicated metal community that come out to a 10 p.m show on a thursday night and or a band that they like you know like my band when we were active you know our fans would go to every single one of our concerts you know might be on the north side of the city one night joliet another night they would be there and know all the words, you know, that kind of feeling of everybody in this community is is something really, really special. And there've been so many just excellent bands who've come out of our scene and special shout out also to um, Rebel Radio and Scott Davidson, who's been going for many decades, helping keep the scene alive and has interviewed every single person on the national, international stage that you could possibly think of. And just, yeah, it's, it's incredible that I can live where there's the best classical you could possibly want, but also all this other stuff. And I'm just so incredibly grateful. Well, that's terrific. I want to thank you both for a lively discussion and far more importantly, for an amazing album. Again, the album is Dependent Arising, Concertos for Violin by Dmitry Shostakovich and Earl Minian. And my guests on this Classical Chicago podcast have been violinist Rachel Barden-Pine and violinist slash composer Earl Minian. Thank you both. <laughs> thank you, Jim. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much. See you next time. <laughs>